Welcome to the Epigenetics Podcast from Active Motif. Join host Dr. Stefan Dillinger for lively discussions with leading epigenetics researchers. Hear about their past experiments, what they're working on now, and what's coming next. You know their papers, now get to know them and discover the stories behind the science. Hello and welcome to this episode of the Epigenetics Podcast. Today I'm happy to welcome Jane Skog from New York University School of Medicine on this show. Please let me briefly introduce you to our audience. Uh, you got your PhD from Imperial Co Cancer Research Fund. You then left science for 12 years and came back to do a retraining with a master's degree, followed by a four-year Wellcome Trust career re-entry grant, which funded your postdoc. Um, in 2002, you then got funding to start your own lab at uh, the University College in London. Then in 2006, you were recruited to New York University School of Medicine, and basically you are still there today as the Sandra and Edward H. Meyer Professor of Radiation Oncology in the Department of Pathology. Um, my question I'd like to ask every guest to start off our little podcast is, how did you become interested in biology in the first place and then in pursuing a career in science? So I, um, I've always been interested in science and how things work. And um, I think also my background is kind of an interesting background because I grew up in apartheid South Africa and, and apartheid South Africa you know, things were pretty tense. And when I was a kid, I sort of realized that, you know, people are viewing, uh, you know, Africans as different. And to me as a kid, they didn't seem any different. I mean, there were some differences that are superficial, but everyone seemed to be pretty much the same. They seemed to have the same organs and stuff like that. So I, I kind of was interested in, in that, um, because I was interested in people's perception of you know, how different everyone was and why some people could perceive this and others not. And also, you know, being in Africa, you know, you're just surrounded by wildlife, you're surrounded by animals. We spent my, I spent my childhood outdoors. I didn't wear shoes most of the time. So, you know, you become interested in biology basically just because of that. And also, I think my family are all sort of scientists, but my father's an engineer, but I wasn't really interested in machines. I was more interested in people. And there's also a lot of disease in South Africa. So that was another thing that kind of got me curious about um, science. And so initially I wanted to go into medicine, but um, I changed my mind and I'm very glad I did <clears throat> because I don't think medicine would have suited me at all. And, um, you know, I really love science because I think it's a, it's an amazing career. You go and you can ask questions of interest to yourself and, you know, you can pursue whatever angle you like as a PI as long as somebody's funding you. <laughs> so, yeah. So coming to your science that centers around understanding the impact of spatiotemporal alterations and chromosome dynamics in normal and disease settings. Um, I want to start in the year 2001. Um, that year, a paper was published in Nature Immunology, and I think that seemed to have started your research on the VDJ recombination. Um, the title of the paper was Non-Equivalent Nuclear Location of Immun Immunoglobulin Alleles in, in B Lymphocytes. Um, could you briefly explain the concept of VDJ recombination and how nuclear location of the genes contributes to the process um, of allelic extrusion? Right, so, so VDJ recombination is a, is a programmed recombination event that occurs during B cell development. And it, it involves, you know, uh, recombining different elements on a particular locus, which is very large in general, like more than one megabase 
and some of them are 1.9 megabases in size. And so you have lots of variable re, uh, uh, genes that are sort of spread out along this lo locus, um, up to sometimes 200. And then you have diversity genes and you have joining genes. And these basically are, you know, cut and pasted together in different combinations. And the combinations depend on a lot of a lot of things, accessibility, uh, you know, a, a, a transcription, this is germline kind of transcription, but basically they are put together. And um, so this process is very tightly regulated because obviously it involves double-stranded breaks and you need to repair these breaks. And if you don't repair them properly, then you uh, can get an awful lot of uh, lymphomas and leukemia associated issues. So um, this process is also regulated so that it um, it occurs on it, it it's it's supposed to be that you have one productive functional allele because if you have two the cell will get confused because the cell the productive rearrangement leads to a, a receptor that is specific for a specific antigen so if you have two productive rearrangements then you will have a, your cell will be confused because you, you're going to recognize two different antigens and won't know what's going on. So you really want to control it so that you rearrange um, two different, you, you make a rearrangement and then you stop. And so actually the paper that you're discussing is not about VDJ recombination, it's actually about class switch recombination, which is a second program recombination event that B cells undergo after they've gone through the VDJ recombination and successfully rearranged their receptors, then they become mature B cells, but they are sort of basically naive B cells. They don't know, they haven't seen an antigen, so they, they, they won't survive long unless they see an antigen. So then if they see an antigen that they recognize, they will you know, proliferate and then they will undergo this class switching event, which is a second event that allows you to uh, streamline your receptor in a way that's sort of suited to the antigen that you're responding to. So it's, it's another recombination event, but similarly, you have only one reproductive rearranged allele at that point. So even if the other allele is undergoing recombination, it's not going to, at the class switch recombination, it's not going to produce a, it's not going to make any difference. So, but generally speaking at this point, you're your productive allele is the important allele, and it's the one that's expressed most highly. The non-productive allele is never going to be expressed highly because it doesn't have the enhancer next to the promoter and all the right things going to the place. So class rich combination is going to occur on that, you know, productive, productively rearranged allele. And so you want to keep these things separate in the cell um, somehow to kind of make sure that yeah, one they're treated differently. So the what we discovered, and this is in Mandy Fisher's lab, because she initially, when I went to her lab, had just discovered that actually in B and T cells you have active genes that are positioned in the euchromatic region of the nucleus, and then these in and then when you uh, when you're an inactive gene, you're either positioned at the nuclear periphery or which is a repressive compartment or you can be positioned at pericentromeric heterochromatin. And we were not sure whether this positioning at pericentromeric heterochromatin is a default at that point, so that anything, or, or something that when you've tried to shut something down, it goes there rather than the periphery. So she had discovered that a lot of genes that are active in 
T cells, but not in B cells, will be in the um, euchromatic regions of T cells, but in B cells, they'll be at pericentromeric regions. So, and, and so we, we showed the same thing with these, but now we're looking at alleles, not genes. So the active allele is, is euchromatic and the inactive allele is a lot in large part at pericentromeric heterochromatin. But these things are all very dynamic. So it's a question of, you know, on and off. So how do they, discriminate each other uh, so that one allele goes there and the other one goes to the, the active compartments. Uh, how is this uh, discriminated? Is this due to the yeah. fact that it's modified or that it's repaired? So I, I think in the beginning, you have two alleles that are equally accessible. Once you go through, a, a so they're both in euchromatic regions of the nucleus. Once you go through rearrangement, now one is productive and the other one gets shut down. Because okay. and we actually showed that when you when you got a productive rearrangement, you'll go you you will immediately differentiate the B cell because the B cell can then go to the next stage of development. And during that process, a number of different events occurred to shut down recombination on the for the other allele. So that that um, process involves partially moving to um, pericentromeric heterochromatin, but there are a number of other things that happen, which is that you know, there's a signaling pathway change because um, you're differentiating. So also the B cell moves away from the stroma and it goes inwards in the bone marrow. So it's not in contact with stromal cells that are secreting IL-7 that are, is also necessary for making the, um, the um, Ig heavy chain, for example, accessible. So a, a number of this cha these changes occur at a number of different levels. So I my view is that if you're active, it keeps you, you know, it, it keeps you in, in the euchromatic regions of the nucleus. If you're inactive, you are probably by default going to go either to the nuclear periphery or to pericentromeric heterochromogen. Yeah. So then in 2002, you started your own lab at the University College London, as we already mentioned, and you uh, could focus your work on the contribution of the nuclear organization in regulating B cell development. Um, this uh, led to a first senior author publication of your lab in 2005, um, titled Locus Decontraction and Centromeric Recruitment Contribute to Allelic Exclusion of the Immune Globulin Heavy Chain Gene. Um, what did you do there and what did you find? Right, so I was actually collaborating a lot with um, Meinrad Buslinger at the time he was at the IMP in Vienna. And he was very interested in looking at, um, you know, the movement of the periphery, because basically when you start off in B cells or B, uh, very early in development, the, the Ig heavy chain is at the nuclear periphery. And then it becomes active as you start to express transcription factors that, you know, activated so they the two alleles will come off the periphery and he was very interested in looking at this and um, also in looking at the fact that what we had discovered uh, you know before is that these alleles so there are you know they're very long genes okay and what you want to do is to recombine them but if you've got a mega base between two different segments that have to be recombined how is that going to happen? So we uh, postulated that it was through looping, right? And this is in very early days and looping had been suggested, but not really shown that much. So um, so with in collaboration with Harinda Singh and Stephen Kozak, he had shown that these alleles, once they start to undergo recombination, 
the two ends become really close together by fish analysis. You can't set, see the separation, but if they're um, prior to this event, there's kind of a separation between the two ends. So we went further than that because we wanted to look at the, the individual genes that are located between those. So you could say, okay, we've got the two ends, but what's happening in between? Is there really a loop form? Because you couldn't see that with just two ends. And with that, we could show that there's really a loop form because you can see that the, the different probes that you use are not in the linear order that you would see them on, on the chromosome. They are so that they would be looped. So one, the middle one is sort of looped out away from the two ends. So that was kind of one of the first demonstrations of looping and it was kind of cool. And then after that, I realized that actually when you look later in development, what happens when the productive re rearrangement has taken place, you want to stop the other allele going to be rearranged. And one of the things that contributes to this is this decontraction event. So you decontract the non-rearranged allele, which also stops, is another way of stopping the rearrangement. So there's multiple layers of like regulation, and this is just another level, stopping the two um, pieces coming together, basically. So what's the difference between the looping on this locus and the looping that everybody is, everybody's discussing now, like the TEDs and chromatin loops? Uh, uh, is there a difference or is it basically the same mechanism? I would say it's basically the same as mechanism, but there's some kind of confusion in the field at the moment. And I have left the field, really, because um, I left the field at the point before I, I never got into the kind of CTCF TAD structure of the IGH locus because I felt like there were too many people in this field. <laughs> it became very crowded and it became crowded with people that have a lot more money and could do things that I couldn't do. So I felt like it was not really something that I wanted to continue with anyway. Yeah, I don't want to go into more detail here, but um, focusing on other things, um, you also focused on the RAC proteins and their role in the process of VDJ recombination and B-cell development. Uh, so maybe you can go a little bit in more detail. What are RAC proteins, especially, I think you focus on RAC1, and which role does it have in the nuclear positioning of the immunoglobulin loci? Right, so actually we were focused on RAC2, but there are two RAC proteins, and these are called recombinase activating genes. And they are basically the enzyme that promotes the recombination event. So there are two proteins. One has the catalytic activity, and that's RAG1. And RAG2 is a cofactor, if you like. It's a, um, it's a, a gene that's been duplicated from RAG1. Mm -hmm. And um, actually, I don't know about that. I'm not 100% <laughs> sure of that. I think, I think it has. But... Um, but it, you cannot have recombination if you just have RAG1. You need RAG2 there. So, um, so the two are really, really important. And we discovered that there was um, a um, residue on RAG2 that is important for preventing recombination occurring on both alleles at the same time. And that's also another part of this process of allele, what we call allelic exclusion, making sure that only one allele gets functionally rearranged. So even if you had the opportunity, I mean, you do have the opportunity maybe in the um, IG heavy chain locus of, of having the same level of accessibility on the two alleles so that each can undergo recombination at the same time. But recombination is not totally efficient because if it was, you would get too many breaks in the cell. So, you, you, you know, it's not a 
process that you see when you look at breaks down the in the in the nucleus you see that there's like breaks in maybe 10 percent of the nuclei so it's not a really efficient process so it's unlikely that two alleles are, are going to immediately you know get broken at the same time so but when you have a break what we discovered is that there is a residue rag that stops the break occurring on the second allele. And this mechanism involves the DNA um, damage response factor ATM. So ATM phosphorylates this rag to residue. And then uh, I think it's for some reason it becomes, it's, it, it's what pushes the other allele to pericentromeric heterochromatin. So for a time it becomes inaccessible to uh, you know the rearrangement machinery so if the so i think even if the rearrangement is non-productive it's not going to stay there because the other allele can move back again and keep going until you differentiate into the next stage and you don't have the same um yeah transcription factors and things that are important for accessibility so if they play a role in breaking the dna they also may play a role in keeping the genome intact and keeping it together and repairing it again. So what uh, is the role of those proteins in this process? Um, so, well, they also have, they're also involved in a number of different levels because for example, you don't want cells that don't have a repaired allele to go through cell cycle. And uh, Stephen, Desi I can't pronounce his name, Desidero, um, showed that um, there's a residue on RAG2 that gets phosphorylated during cell cycle so that it, gets degraded okay so that's another reason that you degrade rag i told you there are multiple ways of controlling this reaction um so you degrade rag so you will not introduce breaks during cell cycle which would be dangerous right so, and so the this residue that i'm we, we we looked at which is the s365 residue um if you mutate it to an alanine it it doesn't, it can't be, um, it can't be phosphorylated. And if it can't be phosphorylated, you then see that you will get breaks on the both alleles much more frequently in the same cell than you would if you had an intact rag. And we also showed this, this is important because you have different, you have two different, um, no, three different loci in B cells, for example, that will, can go undergo recombination. The first is the IG heavy chain. And that rearrangement takes place in pro B cells. Once you've rearranged the um, heavy chain, you need to rearrange the light chain because the light and the heavy chain form the B cell receptor. And the light chain can come in two flavors. It can come in, 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 the, in terms of a kappa locus or a lambda locus. And in um, mouse, it's 95% that the kappa locus is rearranged. In humans, it's about 60. So the lambda locus is less frequently arranged. So why? is that and what's controlling that i mean aside from transcription factors which i think are important you have you are sort of becoming accessible at different times but the other thing is that, that you you have these loci sitting there they could potentially become broken at the same time so you don't want that to happen and we also showed that if you go into the next stage of rear di um, differentiation where you rearrange the light chains you don't see breaks on kappa and lambda in the same locus. But if you mutate that residue on RAG, you, you do see that. You see that there's bilocus rearrangement occurring as more often than you would see it in a normal cell. So when we move uh, along the timeline and now move more into 
let's say the epigenetics of your work. <laughs> yeah. um, you looked at the role of enhancers on this uh, VDJ recombination. However, um, enhancers can be active and inactive and even inactive enhancers can play a regulatory role in gene activation. So what did you find about the cooperation of active and inactive enhancers? Because uh, I never thought that also inactive enhancers can be somehow Regulatory. Yeah, yeah. So, no, we were sort of surprised about that, and we still don't understand the mechanism for that. Which is, but it, it just says suggests to me that you cannot always use um, chromatin marks. That the normal chromatin marks that we think of as related to um, enhancers like HVK twenty seven, acetyl, um, ataxic peaks, and all of these kinds of things, and that we have to be a little careful about this because if you were i mean this is a big question in the field which i'm very interested in is trying to identify you know regulatory elements of a particular gene it's very hard because you know these regulatory elements can be quite far away they can be up to you know a megabase away if you like more more likely 500 kb but that's a long distance right but that's one thing and the second thing is that there may be more than one regulatory element that's in controlling a gene. Um, you could have a number of enhancers and you could have a combination of enhancers and silencers. So trying to pair those things up with the target gene is very difficult. And actually we, are, we have kind of developed a pipeline for doing this using a lot of TCGA data. So it's a computational method to um, look at changes in methylation at different places that are uh, in the non-coding genome and look at the um, effect that it has on gene expression in genes that are within a megabase of the regulatory region. So we actually, is it's kind of cool. We pick up a lot of um, very robust interactions and I will call them regulatory interactions because they're not, we haven't proved that they're physical interactions. So they're potential regulatory actions, some are interactions, and some of these have been identified, which is nice because that tells us we're not just, you know, coming up with um, a load of uh, nonsense. So, and some are novel. So we want to spend time to investigate these. But the thing is that we, and what we found is that these are a robust against across many cancers. So it's not cancer specific, but the cancer, the, the data, you know, all the data in the TCGA gives you a huge amount of data so that you can come up with these, you know, statistical, statistically significant interactions. So that, that's what's important. But they are, they tell you what's involved in regulating a gene. And um, these regulations seem to be um, correlated with interactions that were identified by Bing Ren. And they're also very much correlated with survival, either in a negative and a positive way. So that's something we're going after um, with in, in, the, in the sort of future direction at the moment. So yeah, that, I'm very, very interested in uh, regulatory elements. Sorry to interrupt you, but is that the epi method tag that you're talking about or is that a different method? No, this is, in, this is not published actually. I okay. mean, <laughs> the the epimethyl type was a way of, um, which is actually an idea of a postdoc of mine, Priscilla Lumo. She came up with um, this method and she wanted to, um, she was working also in collaboration with Dan Landau's lab at the time because they were interested in trying to do the same thing, which is to look at methylation at the same, on the same DNA molecule as a TAC-seq and or CHIP-seq. 
which is nice because you, you, otherwise you don't know when you are do, dealing with a population of cells, you don't know that your ataxic peak and your methylation are not on different alleles or the same alleles. So that um, was a nice method to uh, detect that. And I think that's kind of useful. So no, this, um, this is more of a future direction because um, I think that, you know, it's a bit of a problem. We have everybody in cancer, for example, they sequence exomes because it's cheaper. Um, they look for genes that they know are driver genes. But then what about mutations in regulatory elements that control driver genes or important genes that contribute to cancer? And this is a really huge area that I don't think there's one answer to this question, right? I think many people are approaching this problem in different ways. And I think many answers will be necessary to address the question because, you know, we can come up with a method. It's, I know that our method is flawed in that it doesn't capture everything because we're basically- yeah, Because you have the, the one megabase restriction, right? No, that's not the one megabase okay. restriction because that is our choice. We could go further. Okay. Uh, that's our choice to limit it because that's what we think of as like a tag size. And so we think, that most regulatory elements, and okay. they will be mostly within that region. So, so, but um, oh, I've forgotten what I was going to say. Um, no, the reason that it's it's not uh, it's it's fraud in that it's not going to pick up everything is that we rely on at the moment 450k Illumina arrays, and they are you know they don't approach 100% of catching all the ctcf sites or all the you know um attack seed sites or all the dna's hypersensitive sites um so so basically now we're moving up to the 850k illumina array so we'll capture more but that's probably still not 100% so you're you're going to be missing stuff always but what my point is that it doesn't matter because if you identify regulatory elements of important genes, that is enough. I mean, you don't have to identify every regulation, re regulatory element of every gene. That's going to be really difficult, right? So, I mean, our idea is to find some really interesting reg potential reg regulatory elements and then validate them with CRISPR and, you know, look at the genes that we're particularly interested in and also provide a tool for other people for for example you know we find that um we identified some potential regulatory elements in the proto-caterin cluster and these some of them have been identified the ones that we see and then we find some novel ones so somebody who's interested in this cluster which is not particularly me um can use that and and go and test you know, is this is this really the case? You know, so I think it's an important tool that people can use, and, and it's will... not just cancer. You know, you yeah. can go. And, and this will be published soon, or is it on bioarchive? Or no, 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 it's not on bioarchive. We are in the process of validating and doing also our own promoter capture to look at, um, you know, whether these. Uh, target genes that we think are being controlled by a regulatory element are actually in contact, you know, so we want to validate at different okay. levels. So, and we also have actually taken um, a cohort of lung cancer patients because there is a, um, a group of people in NYU that work on lung cancer. And um, one of the, one of these people approached me and they said, you know, they realized I was interested in this phenomenon of non-coding regions being important for, um, um, you know, mut mutations being important for driving cancer possibly. So they had like hundred patients and they'd done exome sequencing on them. And only two thirds of these 
patients have driver mutations. So they gave us the other one third to look at. So we can try to come up with something that might be driving the cancer and look at the you know, regulatory interactions that we're seeing. And so that's, you know, that's a nice validation as well, because that's actually a real validation <laughs> in terms of patients. And what kind of chromatin marks are you looking at there? Uh, well, we don't, we don't look at chromatin marks. We just look at DNA methylation because there are okay. not enough chromatin marks in TCGA. You okay. could look at anything basically, but you just need enough data. And yeah. the most data there is, is met DNA methylation and RNA. So That's what we use so far. Okay, so you said that you, yeah, you don't want to go into the business of uh, chromatin looping, or you left the field and 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 so on. Oh no 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 no! No, <laughs> no I left the field of uh, you know the I left the field of VDJ recombination okay. and transcript recombination because okay. I felt like I felt like I couldn't contribute more to the field. And I feel like everyone else had, a lot of people had jumped into this area and they could do more than me. So I didn't want to do it anymore. And, and, and actually my, my interest has always been really in gene regulation as just a basic thing. And I thought that maybe I could look at this in a, because I also like very mechanistic stuff. So I thought, but we have to be realistic in that we have to be funded, right? <laughs> so, so I thought the way to do this, to do interesting things and to get money was to go into the cancer arena and to, you know, look at mechanisms that are involved in causing cancer, but also that provides you with mechanistic understanding of what is going on in normal cells, right? So that's what we did and what, what we're actually doing a lot of. So one of the projects in the lab that we are very, um, we're, we're working on at the moment is, um, for example, CTCF mutations that occur in cancer, okay? So C CTCF mutations occur in a lot of different um, cancers. Um, and we became very interested in this in collaboration with a guy who's very, um, who's a sort of zinc finger expert. So he is at NYU with me, Marcus Noyes. And so we had a lot of discussions about this because at the, at the time that we were thinking about this, the, the crystal structure came out and it shows that this CTCF molecule, which has 11 zinc fingers, three zinc fingers, three to seven are making specific contact with the DNA. And so we were kind of interested in looking at the mutations of these because he has a bacterial one hybrid system where he can show you, you can just take your zinc fingers of interest and you, you have a, um, a binding site and you basically you put your zinc fingers attached to um, the omega subunit of RNA pol 2 you put it into bacteria and in the bacteria you have either whatever you want your consensus binding site then you can introduce them and then you you have um if the ctcf binds to this consensus binding site you have a readout of gfp right so if it's wild type you get 100 gfp it's a sort of proxy for affinity i would not call it a real affinity um, measure but it is a proxy so then you can introduce your mutations and ask does does this affect the affinity in the bacteria yes it does you know the GFP goes up or down, and then you can pick in uh, mutations of interest. Then you, what we did next is we take the mutants and ask, instead of having a consensus binding site now, we just use a randomized, uh, I think it's 15 base pairs. And um, these 15 base pairs, if it, it will, they, the mutations might bind different 
to different some set of base pairs than normal. So then you will find that actually this mutation provokes to bind this binding site compared to the consensus binding site, which is kind of dangerous if you think about CTCF where it's binding all over the nucleus, right? I mean, all over the genome. And now it's going to prefer to bind to a different set of, you know, sequences. So, so we decided then we put these mutations into um, a Degron system. So basically, we took Alfej Nora's ES uh, cell system where he had introduced a Degron into the uh, endogenous CTCF locus, and he tagged it with uh, a GFP. And then we used this and we targeted our wild type or mutant CTCF to the tiger locus, where we express these and they also have a um, flag tag so you can chip them and you can distinguish them from the endogenous. And they also have like uh, a floor floor that you can look at by facts to look at expression levels. So we put these mutations in and we compare the wild type with the wild type transgenes with the mutant transgenes. And you can do this in a setting where you have degraded your, um, your um, endogenous CTCF or where you haven't. And the physiological setting in a cancer would be that you would have both a wild type and a mutant version. So it's nice to look at exactly what the mutant will do if there's no um, wild type present, but it's also nice to see, can it compete with the wild type? Or you know what happens if that if in that situation. So so what we find now is that actually there are a lot of um, mutations that prefer to, that lose binding. Some lose binding altogether, and that depends on where the mutation is, because the zinc fingers are sort of made up of different residues. So there's residues that hold the zinc together on the zinc finger. Those are really important. So if you mutate one of those, you pretty much lose binding of the whole protein. And if you mutate the residues that are actually in contact, specific contact with the DNA, you can get a change in binding um, preference. And then there's the residues that make contacts with the DNA phosphate backbone. And so those are more stabilizing the contacts with, uh, with the DNA. But those, so what we predicted from those is that if you mutate those, what you will have is that you will not change the binding sequence preference, but you would just lose um, stability. So the CTCF will only bind to the strongest sites. And there are a variety of sites in the genome. So those stronger sites are where it's going to bind to, but that's, you know, that's how um, it, 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 it's uh, um, going to affect the um, binding profile. So we've done a lot of mutations and we also look at the TAT structure. What's the effect of the TAT structure? It makes a big difference. Like you get major differences in TAT structure with different mutations. The interesting thing is that some mutations you will lose affinity and some you will gain affinity. So actually that is also kind of cool. And so you can, now you have a sort of, you have this loss of function, which people have already analyzed a lot. What happens when you take out CTCF, you know, whatever globally or particular sites, but now we're actually inserting CTCF into a number of different sites that it doesn't normally go to. What happens there? You know, what happens to the TAD structure? What happens to the gene regulation? So it's pretty, it's pretty cool. I mean, and then we will put these into mice to look at, mm -hmm. you know, what happens in cancer. Yeah, so you answered my last three or four questions with uh, with that, um, but I um, just wanted to, to summarize or to get a summary of you. So what is your focus for the next, let's say, five years? Is it is it the CTCF? Is it the 
the thing um, where you correlate um, the regulatory elements to genes or what is your main focus now for the next five years? Yeah, so I mean, I, I, I want to publish the CTCF mutation paper so that hopefully will come out soon. Um, and I want to put these into mice to see because we, I have a program project out with um, two people who are, work on leukemia, T-cell leukemia, Janos Ifantis and Ari Melnik, who works on B-cell lymphoma. So in collaboration with them, you know, we'll introduce mutants into B-cells and T-cells and ask what's, does this actually change the prognosis? Are they acting as drivers? I mean, how, how does it work? So that, and then, um, yes, I'm, I mean, I also have sc screens to look for regulatory elements for the mismatch repair genes because they are such an important set of genes and they're very important in cancer too because um, mismatch repair genes, if they're defective, you, they can cause uh, microsatellite instability. And microsatellite instability is really one of the important factors in whether you get in immunotherapy or not because my, if you have microsatellite instability, you produce a lot of neoantigens, so you tend to be more responsive to immunotherapy. So I'm sticking with the gene regulation in this instance and not the immunotherapy part, but we are we did a screen where with um, Neville Sanjana, who, who is the person who uh, you know identified uh, CRISPR in one, in one of the labs that were, you know, the that identified uh, this process. So and um, so we we're now kind of trying to figure out those elements. Um, and um, the other direction is, you know, I will what, what I this um, enhance the silence of thing will probably go in different directions, depending on the tools that come up. But I'm re really interested in it. And I'm also interested in quiescence. I now have a project with um, the Cancer Center director here at NYU, um, Ben Neal. Um, because he um, has identified um, that breast cancer resistant cells are quiescent. And so we want to try to understand how that is in terms of chromatin regulation, how do these, and how is gene regulation altered in a quiescent cell compared to a, a normal G1 cell? Because basically people don't really distinguish between G1 and G0 cells. And actually, it turns out that having left the B cell field and saying that's that, um, <laughs> uh, the B cell field is now back in my lab because during B cell development and T cell development, B and T cell developments go through these quiescent stages. So, you know, you can use these cells to look at what's going on in normal development and how the process of quiescence itself is important for B cell development, T cell development. And also when you become a memory B cell, you're a quiescent cell until you see the antigen again. So there must be some important regulation under, you know, in these cells. So that's those are kind of my key areas that I'm kind of going in the directions I'm going in. So back to B cells again. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds, it sounds very interesting, uh, at least to me. Uh, we now took a journey through your scientific career. Is there something that we missed uh, in this interview or that uh, you still want to share? Um, um, no, I think I would. I think I just think that people that, for, you know, I think maybe I want to say that, you know, that we have kind of entered a, a strange era of maybe science, the whole of the world. I mean, and there's this sort of, 
I, I don't know. I, I feel like this, it's very hard now to find people who are so, you know, driven by science, which I feel is so important, like to be really excited and to be really driven because science is a, is a great career, but it's also like you're always living on a bit of a knife edge because you're always dependent on a limited amount of funding. So you go from being okay to, oh God, you know, and this is, this is pretty hard. I mean, it's a pretty hard career to be always going up and down. But I think, you know, what, what's really important in science is, is that you care about it enough to, you know, to go on, right? You're driven by something. Like I have, I have a postdoc in my lab now who is, She's, she's great. She's so enthusiastic. It's just like, it's a pleasure to work with, with someone like that because, you know, you don't feel like you're dragging them into the lab. You know, you're not, you know, we're not allowed now to say you, you must work on weekends or, which I never did anyway. I feel like people should be motivated enough to do that. But this is culture has come that, you know, we are stressing everybody out in science and, and we shouldn't be putting too much pressure on that. But actually, Science is a very pressurized field. If you can't handle it, don't be in it, right? I mean, we we have to deal with it. We have to deal with the ups and downs. And but what keeps you going is the enthusiasm and the burning desire to find the answers to, to questions. So I think it, this is just a really important thing for me that we keep going in science with a lot of enthusiasm. And you know, that's that's important. And it should be fun. It shouldn't be, you know, it shouldn't be anything else. <laughs> And I think that's a good way to end this interview. Thank you, Jane, for your time and for being on the show. Great. Okay. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Epigenetics Podcast from Active Motif. We hope you enjoyed it. You can find all the mentioned references in the show notes. Please rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast on your favorite podcast platform so you never miss an episode. We'd love to hear from you. So please send us your feedback on Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn, or via email at podcast at activemotif.com, and we'll give you a shout out in a future episode. For more great epigenetics content, check out the Active Motif blog at activemotif.com forward slash blog. Thanks for listening and stay tuned.